from two books that really go, go together nicely. In uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, we learn how to think about the Bible and understand its authority and so our response to it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That means the Ten Commandments. That means the Levitical Law. That means every word of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's God-breathed. That means that God put it into the heart and then the pen of the writer of Scripture so that the writer wrote the word that God wanted him to write. And that's not dictation, but it is inspiration. It's what we, what we call the dual authorship of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit is superintending the writers of Scripture so that what they wrote was what God wanted them to write. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16. Let's all say it together. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16. 17 goes with it nicely for the, the purpose of it. But... Um, but the other 316 I want to mention is 2 Peter. And it's not 16, it's 318. I apologize. 2 Peter 318. 2 Timothy is the last letter of Paul. And 2 Peter is the second and therefore last letter of Peter. And chapter 3 of 2 Peter is the last chapter. And 318 is the end of Peter's words in his last hurrah, in his last words to the church. In writing, 2 Peter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18. Two verses to memorize, to have as your north star, to know what your life is for and what to do with it. If God is breathing out the word that we have in the pens of the authors of Scripture then we know where should be our focus and priority for each day. And if God has a plan for our growth, that it requires the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we're supposed to be on a constant track of growth, then it's pretty clear from these two little verses, those two little memory verses put together, that we need to be about the Word because God has some growth He wants us to enjoy. You're not going to grow apart from the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Just coming off of a prayer meeting for uh, most of you, but um, it's okay to, uh, to give everybody a shot at uh, 1 John 1, 9. The Bible is very clear, writing to Christians, the Apostle John, offering the fellowship that he has with Christ. It says, we have fellowship with him, and then we offer that fellowship with you through the knowledge of what he writes of Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God being the issue, personal sin being the detraction from it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hope you understand every believer is forgiven from all sin, past, present, and future. And the deal is that you're in Christ, you're in union with Jesus Christ, but that's your position and experience. You're commanded to abide in Jesus Christ, to walk with him in fellowship and when you break fellowship with him through personal sin, you find yourself in the environs of 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Don't lie about the sin. Don't say, well, my position in Christ means that I don't have a problem with fellowship with God. No, your position is inviolate, but your stance with him, your state of in fellowship, having fellowship with him, spirituality, walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, that's in question. And the idea isn't that you have to work up the filling of the Spirit. You don't have to work up any super holy second order blessing of I finally arrived at real spirituality. The idea is that God is constantly desiring to fill you with His Word. He's constantly desiring to characterize you by what He said and personal sin stops or quenches that work of the Spirit through the Word. So I always offer you a moment of silent prayer because it's so vital that we walk in fellowship as we open the Word together. Let's pray. Father, as we open the word tonight, we open our hearts to you that your spirit would guide us into all truth, not just now, but always, and let tonight what we think about, what we meditate on in your word, induce in us more of the character of your son, uh, encourage us 
to put on Christ, to walk worthy of our calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little excursus tonight in the flow of Isaiah uh, chapters uh, 30, um, well, 28 through 35, this little chunk. Uh, just by way of, of what we're doing, where we are in the book of Isaiah, the, the break point between themes of judgment and deliverance is uh, chapter 39 to chapter um, 40. Chapter 40, it's almost like when Dorothy comes um, out of the house after the tornado and it's, it's color. We go from the judgment as the theme to deliverance and salvation in the Messiah. There is still judgment in Isaiah 40 through 66, but the theme is more focused on deliverance. Oh, comfort, comfort my people. And so we're almost to that point. And I say that, you can say, no, no, we're, in, we're just breaking into chapter 34. Well, I say that because 34 and 35 end the oracles of judgment. And then you have, you have this appendix to this book of Isaiah that, that ends in chapter 39. The appendix is Isaiah 36 through 39, the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib and God's deliverance of the people. It's a story. It's not an oracle of judgment. It's a fulfillment, uh, I should say, history of how God did what he said he would do with the Assyrians. And we've studied it. We actually cheated. And I said, we got to get into the story. And we did the story probably last year. I mean, probably a year ago, I should say, several months ago. And so when I say we're almost there, we're done with 36 through 38. And that means that we're almost to chapter 40 and turning that corner. And that's quite a milestone. It's a milestone for you because we've translated Isaiah verse by verse. We've thought it through thought by thought. And we've looked at it in its structure. And I admit that that is one of the most difficult things the Bible challenges us to do. It isn't generally done. Most Christians haven't done that, haven't had the opportunity to do that. Or when it, the opportunity is presented, I've discovered most Christians aren't interested in that um, awesome opportunity. But, um, but it's all on, on video, so it's available to you. All right. So now we're in uh, 30. Three, and I want to hit something that's theological and very helpful for us in our sanctification and kind of emphasize what we kind of closed with last time. And in Isaiah 33, 14, you have this question that points the Bible right at you and you can try to dodge it. You can try to dodge the question, but it's a marvelous question and the wicked and living wicked lifestyles of idolatry in Judah uh, they didn't know the answer to the question, but you and I do because we have Jesus and we have the New Testament and uh, we're so blessed to know the whole story uh, all the way through the book of Revelation of what God's going to do. But in a context of judgment, it says they shiver in Zion, the sinners shiver in Zion. The godless have been seized with trembling. The godless are seized with trembling. The, you see, shivering and trembling are the kind of rhyme and sinners and the godless so that's, okay, just real quick. Is that who we want to be? Do we want to be the sinners and the godless? Or is this a cautionary tale to us to say, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the people quaking in fear at the coming of God's wrath. But that's what is coming. Chapter 34, I know you've read ahead. Couldn't help it. You're so excited to get into Isaiah chapter 34. You've read it. It's 17 verses of pure rage. And um, chapter 35 is 10 verses of pure joy. And that's the conclusion of the the oracles of judgment, but, um, but it's, it's rage on all the nations. All the nations are in uproar in, Isaiah, in uh, Psalm 2. All the nations are under judgment of God's, uh, God's uh, hydraulic press, <laughs> his flaming hydraulic press in Isaiah 34. And so you don't want to be these people. You don't want to be the sinners, the godless, right? And um, because they're the re recipients of the wrath of God. And now this is the question. Me... Uh, me is the word who can sojourn Gavar Gur who can Yagur Lanu among us who among us can live that's the Hebrew question who among us can live and the, the question is on the, on the heels of God burning everything to, to, to lime in chapter 13 verse, three verse, 33 verse 13. Who can live with the consuming fire that is the creator? That his judgment on wickedness is 
going to burn up and eat up all the wickedness. Who can live? This is the, the writer who tells us that our righteous deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. When you, um, when, you, when you speak to a Muslim that is of a conversational bent, I had a lot of occasion to do this, maybe you did in your travels. I, I met a lot of Muslims of goodwill that were friendly and accommodating. At least that's where they portrayed themselves. I had no reason to doubt otherwise that um, various tendencies in Islam to dissemble and notwithstanding. Um, when you meet a Muslim of goodwill, you can have some theological discussions. I once had a Muslim give me the gospel. Not a Christian of Arab descent or a Christian-born Muslim who became a Christian. A Muslim who did not believe in Christ gave me the gospel. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died to pay for your sins. And I said, that's exactly what I believe. And if you believe this, then you have life with God. Yeah. I don't call him Allah. I think you're talking about different persons. But yeah, that's, that's right. That's, you have life with God. And then the, the little translator said, I don't believe this. We stand or fall before Allah on our choices. Allah judges our hearts. And we will be judged for the bad things and blessed for the good things that we do. Well, the problem is that we have a weak view of God in that, and they, they accuse Christians of having a weak view of God, by the way. That they're, they've got the strong God, we've got the God that has three persons that uh, mutually indwell and relate and love one another and uh, have that eternal communion of, of fellowship between the three persons. We, we emphasize love, but they've got power and all that. And, um, but their view of, of God is a perversion uh, of what we're reading here. Why? Because their assumption is that the good things they do are going to outweigh the bad things and that somehow in God's righteous accounting or Allah's righteous accounting, there will be some who will be able to meet the standard. And what this verse does is it reminds us that there is no way that a sinful human being could be acceptable to the Creator. There is no way in ourselves. The answer to this question is, uh, not me. Before a righteous and holy and infinitely, infinitely perfect God, we can't. And this is, what I, this is why I would say this is like to say God is high and glorious in all the things that, that they'll say about Allah. They then bring him back down and say his righteous judgment isn't consistent. Because there's no way to save you from your sins. You have to earn it. You and your sinful state have to somehow pull yourself up to be righteous enough to be acceptable to God. The answer to this question is forthcoming as we see in verse 15. He echoes the question again, who among us can live? Mia Gorlanu, who can sojourn or live, dwell among us? Mokdei Olam. The hearth of Olam. The hearth of eternity. <laughs> What's the hearth of eternity? I believe that in the New Testament frame, this, is a, this echoes the same thought. This is consistent with the no-ending burning of the lake of fire. The hearth is where the fire rages. We recently, I like to throw little stories at you to illustrate. I hope you enjoy it. We, we recently switched over to wood from oil. Now we're oil and wood. Um, and uh, would you believe it? We have a wood stove that will scare you once it gets going. Because even if you turn off the little, the little one op option up or down, you turn off the air, if it's going... It's going to go. And the thing takes off, and it, I feel like we're in some sort of runaway machine gun situation. It's, it, it's going crazy. And I've checked and checked and checked on various uh, resources. Everybody's like, yeah, it does that. That model does that. Enjoy that. You know, 
if it's too hot, go upstairs or, you know, don't, don't feed it for a while or something. But it just cooks off and it goes. The lake of fire never burns out. The hearth of eternity is the language here. The hearth of Olam. Obviously, the character quality of God, if you want to ask the theological question of what the text is teaching and let the Bible develop your systematic theology, we're looking at God and his judgment and his justice. We're looking at God and his righteous wrath on wickedness. And it's not a bluff. It's not God saying, you know, I'll make them really afraid so that then they'll, you know, they'll walk the line. He does that sometimes. He, he does say, I'm, I'm really going to lay it on you. I'll show you in Exodus 20 so that you'll walk with me. But this is, I believe this is the fear of the Lord. We're supposed to not be afraid, Jesus said, of him who can only just destroy our body. But we're supposed to fear him who can destroy both body and soul and Gehenna and the, and, and the lake of fire. And so I think this is some awesome theology here. And if I need to refresh or brush up on my fear of the Lord, this is a great place to do it. Do I measure up? Do I meet the standard? And see, the, the poor in spirit are going to read verse 15, and they're going to read that, and they're going to say, I, I want to be that person. He who walks righteously. Holek Sadikoth, who walks in righteousness or righteously. He who speaks from integrity. That's Mesharim. He who rejects portions from extortion. I didn't mean to rhyme that portions from extortion, but it does rhyme. <laughs> but the idea is to get a share of the booty when there's a, 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 a conspiracy that extorts money. You get your part. I did my end of this, the caper, you give me my part, that kind of criminal stuff. Now, we heard a lot about how God doesn't hate Jesus doesn't hate. He washes feet, you know, in our culture. He hates sin. And we are often criticized because we're known for what we reject. What are we supposed to reject? Well, if one thing would be unfair advance, advance on someone else's, at someone else's expense. Taking something that doesn't belong to us. Extortion ultimately is theft. And, oh, there's no crime here because there's no victim. Yeah, there's a victim. Just the insurance company. Yeah, there's a victim. Everybody that's in the insurance company has is, is now been, been oppressed. Everyone that's paying their premiums is, is hurt by, by the, whatever, the, whatever the crime was. All kinds of justifications for unjust gain, for theft. But um, we reject that. We reject the stupidity, the foolishness of theft because we have a God who, uh, who made everything. And here's the thing. In the universe you live in, based on the creator that we have, if you make it, you own it. And if you own it, then you have the right to make decisions about it. And that's how that's, we get that from God. We're made in God's image. When we make something, we own it. We decide what happens to it, that kind of thing. And so when you transgress that right of possession of something that is the, the, the labor of someone else, it's a big deal to God in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. Don't covet their stuff, their people, their, their product, their, their work, and that you don't, you don't steal from them. We reject this. Who, he, he who shakes his hands from taking hold of a bribe. Here it is. Take the money. It's my money. I'll give it to you. You can have it. No strings attached. Just, just some strings. And, you, and there it is. All that, all that lettuce sitting there. All that cabbage. And, and the police officer says, no, I don't want anything to do with that. The, the integrity is inside is coming out in the hands. I'm not dirtying my hands with a bribe. So we're, we're all you Christians. You're known for your trustworthiness, for having integrity, that we believe in a God who cares the choices that we make and that while I might make this decision now, and this do, let's pick on Congress a little bit in the Senate. I might make this decision now, and it, uh, it might hurt my reputation. 
or my ability to do things or, or especially to get more money from lobbyists if I do this because I get shut out. But it's the right choice and I trust God to back my move eternally. I'll get my recompense from him and I won't worry about you. Wouldn't it be amazing if you had 100 senators in Congress or in the Senate that did that? That said, I'll do what my conscience directs because God is backing the decisions I make and my recompense will be from his hand, not from a lobbyist or from you know, some other money that, that I take a bribe. Wow, that, that would be righteous government. Like Jesus is going to rule in. You should start practicing these things now, by the way. Don't, don't steal and say, well, I mean, I'm saved. You are. But don't, don't rule over what God has entrusted to you different from how Jesus is going to rule because the kingdom's coming. And part of the assessment of how you fit into it will be how you rule with what he gave you now. Who else? He who stops up his ears from hearing of bloodshed. Does this mean David doesn't fit the category? Well, a lot of times he didn't. I mean, in a few key instances in David's life, he didn't. But David is the paradigm king in Israel, and a lot of these things describe him in a general sense. But this idea of hearing of bloodshed, this means that I am protecting here with my ears and my eyes what comes in. I'm protecting the inner person from the, through the gates that are the defenders of the inside. In our civilization, the floodgates are open. The, the gates of the soul and the ears and the eyes are wide open to whatever. As long as I don't physically do something with my hands, uh, then, it, then I'm not, then I'm free. I'm, it's fine. And we're desensitized and all that. But look at what the person that shuts his eyes from looking on evil, who stops up his ears from hearing bloodshed. Obviously, this poetic language, as we've said multiple times, point to your body. Your outside is reflecting the character inside that is a person of integrity. That's you're speaking from integrity. In summary, you're walking righteously. <clears throat> I've been looking for the quote. I need to read more, but um, it's not an easy quote to find. Uh, but I've been told, I've heard on, um, on, on one occasion that, that John Adams, one of our framers of our government, one of the forefathers, second president of the United States. Not really a successful politician. You're like, well, he was president. Yeah, but he wasn't good at working people. He was a man of principle, and sometimes he didn't know how to say it well. So Franklin getting together with Adams, actually a pretty good thing. He had integrity and art together <laughs> between Franklin and Adams, I think is kind of how that worked. And then throw Jefferson in there, but... Um, that's, our, that's how we got our declaration. But um, John Adams was uh, known, or he is one of the things that's known about him, is, uh, is his idea of character, of being a person that you should be or that you want to be. How do I become a person of integrity? He had sons, and one of his sons, uh, if it was a believer, died the sin unto death as a ne'er-do-well uh, drunkard who uh, by either lifestyle or direct action killed himself. Uh, Boston has always been a rough town, I guess, but um, but that's, I think that's his eldest son or one of his older sons died of lifestyle from, uh, from making consistently bad choices. And, um, and, and, but, but he trained sons and, and daughters and, um, and he was also absent a lot doing the, the statecraft. But Adam said in the idea of, um, of being a person of integrity, he said, you have to use your imagination. He said, think, like this, this would be a place to memorize. This is, this is a list. I mean, I learned the scout law, 26 things, you know, that we want to be. All adjectives, right? Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, however many that is. That's the scout law, right? That's the list of things that you want to be. I want to be reverent. I want to be clean. I want to be thrifty. Well, this is, be, this is the Bible list, right? This is, this is a great list of, of character. Now, Adam's idea is that you imagine yourself, think of yourself as a person described, for example, by Isaiah 33, 15. Imagine that that's you. Think of yourself. See, he's, he's using some, almost like some Platonic ideas. Imagine yourself as the form, the ideal you. Get a picture of it, of you, this way. 
and then think about that idea, what, what that, explore the image in your mind of what that's like. See, it's all imagination. And then set that as your objective. I want to be that kind of version of myself. It's a great thought experiment. It's a great way to think about it. Why don't we do these things? Well, we look left and right. We make the equivocation and say the other person doesn't do this. So, I mean, this is how it works in, in, uh, in D.C. or Hartford. I mean, you've got you to go along to get along. All right? So we have no ability to legislate. This is a great time for examples out of, out of Washington, D.C. We cannot make legislation anymore. Our government cannot pass actual laws. All they can do is omnibuses. All they can do is bribe each other. And if, you're, if, if I give you this crazy idiot thing that you want, then you have to give me the good thing that I want, and so I have to vote for idiocy to get, to get righteousness. We get these big billions and billions of dollar bills. As you watch, just watch the headlines. Um, oh, what illustrations we have. But just imagine that this describes you. Young, young men, young ladies. Imagine this is who you are. And then... And then ask God about it, for God's sake, with God. And this is, this is the beautiful thing. I don't have to say he might. You just draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. And we talked about the Christian adjustment on this uh, last time. There's an effect that you, can, that you want. Do you want security and stability in life? He who dwells, he on the heights will dwell. This person who is righteous and is inside out will dwell on the heights and strongholds of rock will be his refuge. He'll be exalted or lifted up. He will be protected. So he's up high and prominent, but he's also protected and covered. How does that work? That's, that's, a, that's a contradiction, but it's not because God has you and he's therefore glorifying himself through you. His bread will be given, his water will be fully, faithfully supplied. And so we looked at all these things in detail. There's a parallel passage in Micah 6 that you should memorize too. And I, I say this, these verses, um, if you're a dispensationalist like me, you know that uh, there's a special sense in which we can be this way today that they couldn't be. There's a special enablement we have today. The new thing that makes me a dispensationalist is that in a point of time that God decided and I didn't, and I believe the year was 33 AD, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit showed up and started living in believers and started occupying believers, possessing or indwelling them and living in our hearts. And Paul says forever. We got the Holy Spirit. And that, again, that's the defining uh, fa factor that makes the church in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, a new agency, not the, the, na the nation of Israel, but a new thing made of Jew and Gentile. But in Micah 6, another Old Testament passage, you have this fantastic thing that you've, a lot of you might have memorized. But I'll come to it beginning in verse 6. You've memorized verse 8, but verse 6 says, With what shall I come to the Lord? What, what would you like? It sounds a lot like the little drummer boy. You know what the little drummer boy is at Christmas song? What that is, they're trying to say, imagine little children, if you were one of the Magi or with them. If you're with the Magi and they've got gold and frankincense and myrrh, they've got very expensive things to give to someone who deserves the greatest and the highest and the best. And the little boy has nothing except rhythm, you know. <laughs> and so he's going to give what he has. What do I need to come to God with, to Yahweh? This is a beautiful prophetic oracle from Micah. And bow myself before the God on high. What should I come to him with? What would he like? There's another Christmas carol. Um, uh, what would I give him uh, in the bleak midwinter? I'll give a lamb. If I was a shepherd, I would, I would give a lamb. Well, um, all the things that you might like to give God, we have some people that will evangelize children and say, give your heart to Jesus or give your life to Jesus. You know, if you trust in Christ as your Savior and he, and he um, is now, his, his work on the cross is applied to you, at that new birth by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and you get imparted with God's eternal life, he does own your heart and your life and everything you have by that given your life to him may not know it but really what you need to do is trust in him as your savior but understand um uh you've given him yourself in trusting in christ that's true but micah comes and says what shall i come to the lord with and bow myself before the god on high shall i come to him with burnt offerings because we have the Levitical code, because we have the patriarchal priesthood, because in Genesis chapter 3, God 
killed animals and gave them skins to cover themselves. And in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel know to give a blood sacrifice as their offering to God. And so is that what God wants? Does he want me to kill an animal? Every animal, by the way, died a horrible, bloody death that was sacrificed beginning with apparently Genesis 3 and that the skins, uh, the, the animals that were killed to give Adam and Eve co cover, and then with Abel's offering, and then on and on into the patriarchal priesthood, into the Levitical offerings from the book of Leviticus and established by the Lord in Mount Sinai. In this system, there was always a horrible, bloody death. And we don't think about that. But if you think about the thousands and thousands of animals being sacrificed for, um, for the, uh, the Passover, for example, it's a very extremely bloody event. You're slitting the juggler vein of these animals, these, these lambs without spot and blemish, and they're bleeding out. And you're, you know, all the, the various aspects of the ritual. And they all point to the sacrifice of Christ, the, the most horrible, violent thing ever done. And one definition of violence, because it is the most innocent and righteous person, the only innocent and righteous person suffering this horrific death. But does God want me to come with these representative sacrifices that are pointing to Messiah? That's, that's what this means, ultimately. Is that what he wants? With yearling calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? Well, he commanded it. And 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I offer wealthy, expensive things? Well, let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about all that I can give him, everything I have, something of real value. Shall I present my firstborn child for my rebellious acts? Will, it, will that satisfy God if I do a human sacrifice to cover my sins? Didn't know that that's what Micah 6 7 said. When you get to 6 8, you memorize it. With your Gideon memorization or your, um, your uh, what was it? Um, um, Navigators, memory, memory cards. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? That's some pretty tight poetry. We have to get into Micah after a pause, after we do some Hebrew and, and, and Isaiah. We'll, we'll eventually get here. Should I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that what I have to do? Well, see, somebody did. I mean, God the Father did have to crush God the Son and his humanity on the cross. This does point to the gospel, just like we said, um, our hopelessness before the, the overwhelming fire of God's wrath, we're, in, we're hopeless. And so, yeah, there will have to be a blood sacrifice, but you can't offer it. It's so great. There's no sacrifice that'll really accomplish this. It's going to be what Jesus did. Now, he's told you, oh man, what is good? Basically, to be like him to be like him in your integrity, to walk in righteousness. That's what he's going to say. He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. You don't have to give your firstborn son. You have to tell the truth. Walking humbly with God as a sinful, arrogant, self-righteous person that we are, walking humbly before God is acknowledging that as needed. Walking humbly before God is telling the truth because God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Walking humbly with your God is the acknowledgement that you are walking with God, that he's with you, and you're believing that he's with you, and you're mindful of him. Today, we talk about mindfulness, or I don't, but it's, it's out there. It's a big thing, big movement. You know, be in the moment, be mindful, meditate, empty your mind to let the demons in or whatever. Um mindful that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. This is what God wants. He wants a relationship with us. And this is a little bit of an attenuation, if you will, a little bit of a lowering of the, of the bar from what we were talking about in Isaiah 33, verse 15. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. God knows they're nasty stinkers and he knows that they're going to need a savior and that, but he still wants a relationship with them. So walk with them. So this thought is pretty consistent. Y'all, last time we talked about the Christian adjustment, we said that the description of the righteous walk in Isaiah 33, 15 is something more than wanting to do good. It's something more than good intentions. Well, I try. 
I once gave the gospel in my neighborhood uh, on a sort of a, an alternative neighborhood Halloween event. We did the Trail of Wisdom, or sorry, the Trail of Folly. And uh, remember that? Um, we, had, we had people come, we, church kids would uh, dress up as the fools in, Isaiah, in uh, Proverbs 6, and they would jump out at the people as they walked on the trail and scare them and then have a little speech about being a fool. And um, that's way scarier to me than the you know, typical ghouls and goblins and stuff, witches at Halloween. Um, but um, anyway, so we did this uh, years ago. We invited the neighborhood, and I was I never never forget the the, the at the end. Lady Wisdom meets them at the end of the trail. And says, "Come with me." Uh, it's the lady in white with a lantern, you know, with the light of the truth, and come with me. And we, so we kind of dramatized Proverbs six. Fun thing, um, uh, especially fun when when Mike jumped out as the man of man of worthlessness and scared everybody. That was like I really appreciate. It your efforts there. He's um, about the opposite, as opposite as could be that Mike would play the man of worthlessness. But uh, anyway, so there we are on the trail of folly and uh, Lady Wisdom brings him over to the campfire and there's Pastor Dave and give him a little message, a little gospel presentation, a little clear, clear deal about what the gospel is and we need to trust in Christ as our savior and we need, you know, and we're sinners and we need a savior and very simple childhood uh, neighborhood message, right? And I'll never forget the congregational church attendee neighbor as they're walking away. Thank you. We're, and, and, uh, and we do our best. We do our best. And it was like they couldn't hear the gospel because we're good enough if we try. We're back to Islam. We're back to Allah. is going to you know, sweep us in because he, he's a benevolent grandfather type person. One... Uh, one funny thing I heard in Iraq, Iraq is a fairly secular culture, and so there are lots of cultures within Iraq. That's the first thing to know. But there are lots of secularized sort of Islamic. It's Islamic culture, but there's some like we we encounter drunk people in in Dishdasha in in the the man dress they wear, uh, the little the, I mean it's like a muumuu. They wear this this long T-shirt, the really long. Uh, and, and if they've been in the military, they wear their pistol belt around the waist. So that's butch. And, and they, this guy was in one of these dish dashes and he was drunk and we had to like, we had to detain him for, for, for raising a ruckus in the town we were, where we were trying to kind of keep the peace at, at one point. And, um, and I, his friend was with him. And after my former police officer, E4 guy, I, I couldn't, I, the best way I could describe what happened to this man that kind of tried to take a swing at him is the guy, my, my E4 guy choke slammed him. Is that a word? He choke He hit him in the quad with his knee and that took his knee and then he grabbed him by his throat and then slammed him on the ground. And it was the most impressive half a second of, that I've ever witnessed in person. And uh, I'm like, what are you doing as a mortarman? He's like, ah, oh, 9-11. You know, I was a policeman before. Anyway, amazing. The guy, while we're zip tying this guy, <laughs> who did really nothing wrong, he wasn't a terrorist, he was just a drunk guy that was getting violent with us. And um, hopefully he, he's still alive. Uh, um, his friend, I said, I said, why, are, why is he drunk? This is one of the pillars. Not one drop. Will they drink if they're Muslims? It's one of the five things. You only got to do five things. I forget all five, but that's one of them. It's no alcohol. And we were briefed on this. And, you know, and the guy said, Allah forbid, but Allah forgive. And that was, the, that was kind of the, the way people thought. That was kind of the street. Allah forbid, but Allah forgive. And I'm like, on what basis? And the Bible tells you on what basis God, the actual creator, has forbidden. It's on the basis of his righteousness and his just expectations. And the basis of forgiveness is the blood of Christ. And if there is no shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So we need Christ. And we saw what verse 15 says. Walks, speaks, rejects, shakes, stops, shuts. The whole person inside out is righteous. And this, this brings us to the question of righteousness. Do you want to live within the confines of the righteousness of God? Do you love it? 
Do you hunger and thirst after? Jesus promises you'll be filled. It's a blessing for you. Happy are you, hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll be filled. I didn't say, do you think you're self-righteous? Are you good in yourself? I said, do you have the idea, back to Adams and ideas, the idea of God's righteousness and desire that? That's what I want for me. Is it a beautiful treasure to you? Or is it something that you'd have to think about and therefore it is not accessible to you? I understand that's where the kids are, the culture is, not, not these kids, but that's where the culture is. If I have to think about it, that's not going to be for me, especially if somebody that you know, my parents are listening to says it. I'll have to go find this out for myself. And so you leave the light to go dither around in the darkness, and that's where the kids are. Lou and I were talking about this. The teenagers in the various youth programs tend to stay around about a 5% rate, the efforts in ministry. You get about 5% of a hit rate with all the efforts you do with youth ministry. And that's whether you stand on your head or whether you play hacky sack or whether you uh, teach intently and intensely at Camp Arete, you get a low percentage of return on your efforts to disciple where they actually adopt that for themselves and run with the gospel and live it. It's a very low percentage, youth ministry people. So, but guess what? 5%. You're going to leave them behind? You're going to, you're going to not, not take care of the 5%? Or, or what, not Preston, 50%. Right? I have a lot of data in 16 going on 17 years. I have a lot of data in my life, in this ministry. And yeah, the kids are already gone. They're already assimilated to a godless culture. They're secularizing their thinking and all that. But, but here's the question. Have we figured out righteousness and longing for it? Loving it? You have God's righteousness declared to your account as a believer. But I think the best way to look at verse 15 of Isaiah 33 is it's about Jesus. Y'all need Jesus. This is about Jesus. He walks righteously. He speaks righteously. Only uprightness coming out of his mouth because what comes out of a man is the product of what's inside the man. See, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I read Isaiah 33:15 the first time, just cursory in English, just kind of cruising through, I said, oh, this is talking about the Messiah because we've already heard about his coming kingdom. But it's not. It's talking about the people in Jer- Jerusalem in the kingdom. They will walk in righteousness. Beloved, you can do it now. Please don't adopt the Muslim idea that Allah forbid, but Allah forgive. Well, he knows I'm not that bad a guy. That's not the way the Bible describes it. It's not, that's not the protocol. Sorry about that, Joel. I shouldn't do that. Walk off stage. I've got a narrow band of success. All right. The other side is to say, well, I can't really rise to that level of righteousness, but I can enjoy myself now. And so I'll just let righteousness go and go for the short term thrill, the short-term enjoyment. My feelings become my God, and that's the path of destruction. In Philippians 3, their God is their stomach. They set their minds on earthly things. Before he said that, he said, whose end is destruction. I believe in our fallen state, we cannot be acceptable to God unless God does something. We can't be righteous in our position or our practice. But as you know, and, and so we're not capable of sanctifying ourselves, setting ourselves apart to God. And we need God to act. This is why we constantly talk about the grace of God. The grace of God is not to say, well, God's just going to brush it under the rug. And the grace of God is not to say, well, I can't really get there and I don't really feel like it. So God's just going to save me. And I know I'm a believer, so I'm going to heaven at the end. I don't have to do the embrace of righteousness. I don't have to do the inside out. Christian life and the power of the Spirit, because I am going to heaven, as though that is the goal of the Scriptures, that you would go to heaven. If that's not the goal, and it's not, believe me, the goal of the Scripture is not that you go to heaven. Sorry. If that's not the goal, then what is? I'll give you a hint. It's not about you. What's the goal of the Scriptures? Is it soli deo gloria? Is that how they say it? Only glory to God. And this is the beautiful thing. Now, why? Oh, man, that's not about me. That's about God. I don't, I don't want to just glorify God. You do, 
because that's the only path for you having actual significance and your choice is having ultimate and eternal value. The only way, the only path you have to making anything out of your life is that God be glorified through you as a willing participant. I promise you, there is no other glory. There is no other thing to go after. Okay, that's for you you high-minded, super go-to-church Christians, take notes Christians. I'm just going to be a believer that kind of does what I'm going to do, but I know I'm going to heaven. Okay, okay. You are going to climb, and if God lets you, you're going to climb to the top of the trash pile. And, and before you got to there, you thought that was it. And you're going to find Solomon sitting there licking a candy bar wrapper, saying, yeah, it's as good as it gets, kid. And he's sitting there licking that candy bar wrapper because the candy bar is all gone. And he remembers what it tastes like, but there's really nothing left. I'm at the top, and now what? Well, I'm on, the, I'm on the top of the trash, and I've gotten to the top, and now there's nothing else. And you're going to find the emptiness of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, is meaningless because it doesn't have any value. It's not permanent. The only way to make your life matter today is God's glory. It's your only hope. So you want to be asking that question. That's worship. God, how do I glorify you? And it will be that he sets you apart to himself. And so the way you get to be like Jesus, the only way is that you get placed in union with Christ at the moment of initial faith in Christ. The Bible calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is how you became part of the body of Christ. You read about that again. It's easy to remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. Street is in chapter 12. The home address is verse 13. We were all made, every one of us, to drink of one spirit, which makes us the body of Christ. That's how we become the body of Christ. All right, so when you first trust in Jesus... You start to be like him in your position because you're brought into union with Christ by this wet, I should say dry spiritual baptism, this union, this identification with Jesus, which is irrevocable. It's eternal. It is your birthright and the new birth, and it is the greatest privilege that you could ever imagine. With it comes many things as we've discussed in the, the Riches of Divine Grace study, all the things that happen when you first believe in Christ. And the one that I really like to emphasize for this study we're having tonight is the earnest of the inheritance. You received not only union with Christ by spirit baptism, not only did you receive indwelling by the Holy Spirit, but you have the Holy Spirit as the earnest of the inheritance who will enable you to receive the fullness of the rewards God wants to give you. And the earnest of the inheritance is Ephesians 1.14. But when you first trusted in Jesus, you received the indwelling spirit for the purpose of setting you apart to God experientially. He was there in your initial sanctification of you being put into union with Christ, positional sanctification, and he's with you every step of the way in setting you apart to God in your experience. And do you know what you're being set apart from? Unrighteousness. You're being set apart to and you're being sanctified. You're being set apart to in God's righteousness. You are living out the righteous character of God. And you can. And how do I know? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's righteousness carried out in your practice. It's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Uh, the other, I forgot one, it's self-control. And against these things, there's no law that, that, that defines unrighteousness. There's no law of God's just wrath on wickedness or unrighteousness because these are in accord with God's perfect righteousness. Do you want to do something righteous? you want to carry out righteousness in your actions? Love somebody. Walk humbly with your God. Be patient. I believe that God sanctifies you positionally when you first trust in Jesus. That's called positional sanctification. What kind of, what kind of sanctification? Positional. Now, y'all think about this. Sanctification means that you're set apart. Positional sanctification means that you're set apart in a sense. It doesn't mean that you're a good boy now and you do good things and think good thoughts. It doesn't mean that. It means that when God looks at you, he sees his son. It means that you are in union with Jesus Christ. The mechanism to accomplish this positional sanctification is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
I'm in Christ. Paul's language of in Christ. That's not your experience. That's your position. That's having put on Christ. But then we are to walk worthy of our calling. We're to walk in accordance with it. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, uh, uh, walk worthy of your calling with which you've been called. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's your experience. So position versus experience. See, in Christ, the language of in in Christo, in Christ, as Paul says, we've been declared righteous. We've been imputed. That's an accounting term with God's righteousness. And so that's the declaration. But see, it's God's righteousness. That's the clothes you're wearing. Now, what are you doing? How are you walking? So the Christian that walks in sin, walks sinfully, in carnality, away from God, the Jonah Christian, that person is wearing the robes of perfect imputed righteousness in the sewer. Those are not supposed to be in the sewer. Sewer clothes are for sewer folk. But you're supposed to be walking in righteousness because you have been declared righteous. Now, does this mean your clothes are no longer the righteousness of God? No, it means you're clothed in it, dragging them through the sewer. That's something, something like what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 6. How are you, who are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, going to the temple of Aphrodite, to the brothel? How are you joining the temple of the Spirit, which is your body, to the ladies of the temple of Aphrodite? You can't do that. That, that, that doesn't go. But verse 15 in Isaiah 33 is talking about your experience. Now, if you are hearing this, I'm talking slowly for a reason. It's because I want to be able to drive one of those Florida or, or New York trucks right through every word that I'm saying. I want you to hear what I'm saying and be able to reproduce it. There is a difference between the initial positional work of God setting you apart to him that cannot be undone and the ongoing effect of the Holy Spirit in your life walking in righteousness. And too many Christians begin to understand their position in Christ and stop thinking about it and say it means I'm going to heaven as though that were the goal of the scriptures. But the goal of the scriptures is not that we go to heaven and you are if you have Christ. Goal of Scripture is that you would bring glory to God, and that is how you would walk in righteousness in your experience. As you grow in Jesus, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you experientially as you grow. Now, where in the Bible we go to find that we should grow spiritually? We would go to 2 Peter 3 and verse 18 to grow spiritually, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. I think that's pretty close to how he said it. 2 Peter 3.18. Spiritual growth is the order of the day. And I believe that it is not like physical growth where it's inevitable. I've known too many baby Christians that are 40-year Christians to think that it's inevitable that they'll grow spiritually. Oh, you've started to have some wine on the sides? You must be an elder. Pas nécessaire. That is not necessarily so or as Irving Berlin said it ain't necessarily so but as you put on Christ as you go after the word as you walk by the spirit there is an effect the Holy Spirit's going to have his effect now if Christian spiritual growth is the order of the day and he does order it he commands it in 2nd Peter three eighteen. if that's the deal and you got to have the Holy Spirit in you, and you have to be walking in this righteousness and growing in the Word. If that's the arrangement, if that's how it works, then what do you think about the people that grow up saturated with opportunity for the Word and walk away from it? What do you think about that? If you're me, it tears you to pieces inside for them. They had it. They had every opportunity And having experienced the opportunity, they said a really stupid thing. They said, I don't feel like it. I mean, they didn't say that, but that's what they did. They they didn't feel like growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They didn't feel like getting in the Word. They didn't feel like, I don't know, learning the structure of Isaiah. 
and learning how the word was communicated so you know God did this through the prophet Isaiah. I don't want to know the word. Just give me some, or uh, give me some theology. Tell me some theology to think, and, and you do the word. I don't want to hear from the Lord. I want to hear from you, that kind of thing. Now, the Bible's challenging. It's challenging. But nothing worth doing isn't challenging. We had a tube TV, a console TV when I was a kid, one of those 600-pound jobs, at 20, 20 inch or 16 inches or something. It was the big one. There was way more furniture than, than cathode, cathode ray tube or whatever it was. This, this is the kind of TV, y'all, know, y'all remember these, that if you broke it, it would explode. Um, so you try not to break it. Um, they lasted a lot longer than the TVs today. They were heavy duty and... Uh, Anyway, um, I had an interesting relationship with our console TV. Uh, we, most of our fights were about the TV, turns out. Through, through life, if you thought about the time that I was at home, most of the fights were about the TV. The, t- the thing was, I wanted to stare at it, and, uh, I, and you wanted me to be um, productive and helpful and useful and not vegetative. But I, I remember the first time, I've got in my mind this vision in my mind of the first time that I turned it on. It had a really interesting, really cool knob that you pulled on for it to come on, and then you pushed it in for it to go off, and it was metal. And it, w- it had a really cool feel to it, like it was spring-loaded, you boom, to turn it on. Do y'all remember that in the console TV? And the boom, to turn it off. And the, 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 like the picture explodes when you turn it, like it, boof. Like genie goes back in the bottle when you turn it off. And um, the, the nine channels, once we got cable, <laughs> right, um, come on and, and that TV pops on. And, you know, the easiest thing I ever did, I remember I was afraid. I remember being afraid of turning it on um, because I thought it was going to shock me. Or um, I, I remember saying, I'm afraid I'm going to turn it on to a movie um, because I want to watch cartoons or something. But little kid. I turn that TV on, pull that thing out. That was the easy thing to do. It was the easiest thing to do. And there's something that happens I've learned since in my brain with dopamine, through my eye gate, through passive stimulation, that my brain starts to crave. It becomes almost like a drug. And that explains why people ever watch Three's Company reruns. (laughs) That's true. You could write that one down. If you ever did that, I once did it too. I was a kid, but I did it too. And the only reason you do that is because dopamine is happening, because there's nothing valuable there. But I would still get the elbows and just kind of waste time. And I'm not confessing my sins to you so much as saying that uh, there's no difference between me and Roald Dahl's problem with the TV and what's happening today with the children, except that they've got more enjoyable passive stimulation. And so what's, so what's the point to that? That you have a heavy lift to help young people see that there's more to life than the stimulation of passive enjoyment of, of just sitting there. And they feel like that. And we all feel like that. We all feel like we'd rather have sugar than not have sugar. Okay, you can have sugar or not sugar. Which one? Well, I will obviously choose sugar. Would you like ice cream or no ice cream? Ice cream, please ice cream, okay? Uh, I would like to have some uh, brain stimulation, some dopamine, uh, you know, stuff going on with my passive enjoyment or not. And see, the Word of God doesn't, doesn't feed into that loop. It does the other kind of dopamine release. When you work in the Word, it's like when you work in anything else. You get release that's measured because of the effort that you put forth in terms of the physical consequence. And so that, that's really, I think, part of the problem. I'm not just saying to turn off the TV. I am saying that. When I was a kid, the people in, that had it right, and this is, this is galling to me in a way, and, and it's also righteous in a way, but the people that had it right were the Pentecostals that didn't have a TV in their house. The other kids down the road that we don't have a TV, and I can't come over and watch TV at your house, they were Pentecostals, and they were wrong about a lot of things, but they were right about that. They were outside playing. We would do a thing called go outside. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that the Word of God is more work than passive stimulation. And what happens is we don't want to work at it. 
But if you do, if you learn as a young person to work at the Word, then you learn how to have a relationship with other people too, which also require work. And then, by the way, a kid that falls in love with God is ready to get married, ready to work on a relationship with a wife or a girl with a husband because they've already learned to work on a relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? And someone that walks away from a relationship with God, I have very little hope for their figuring out a relationship with a spouse as a Christian because they're not willing to work on the most important thing. They're not going to be empowered by the Spirit. But this experiential sanctification is described especially in Ephesians 4. And I told you I wanted you to read it last time, and I still want you to read it. But the way you and I can bring forth this righteousness in our experience is not by wanting it. It's not by thinking we have arrived. It's not by reading Scripture. Unless it's reading Scripture as we're walking in dependence on the Spirit of God. It is really the work of God in us. It is the walk by the Spirit that doesn't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that Christian spirituality is your birthright. And you know that I'm going to say it is the greatest waste of resources in world history. That believers have the Holy Spirit of God in them to make disciples of the nations, and they don't walk by the Spirit. It's a choice. It requires the Word. It's enablement to do the work that God calls us to do, which begins with the Word of God. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of your Word. We thank you for the spiritual life that you've given us to walk by your Spirit. That it is, interestingly, that you've commanded it, that we would walk by the Spirit, that we'd be filled with the Spirit. This isn't mystical. It is day-by-day, moment-by-moment empowerment to work the righteous works that you have for us. It is bringing forth the fruit of righteousness in us. Father, help us long for the pure milk of the Word. Help us hunger and thirst after righteousness. Help us love what you love. As we draw near to you, Father, fulfill your promise that you draw near to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.